I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Judges chapter 5. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 203. Judges 5, we'll be looking the whole, uh, not the whole chapter, just one, yes, whole chapter 1 through 31, and uh, I have entitled this sermon, Tent Peg and Temple. The key words for our worshipers in training are deliverance, tribulation, and surprise. Today we are uh, continuing a series I began a few weeks ago on songs of the Bible. We've seen uh, a variety of things so far as we looked at Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32. We've seen the importance uh, of, of singing uh, rich, full, and uh, theologically robust songs. Um, we've seen that God is supreme. There is none like Him. And he only is able to mete out true justice against his adversaries. As we consider our text this morning, this song in Judges 5, uh, there are a few things worth noting about the book of Judges as a whole, and in particular the events of chapter 4. Because if you don't know what happens in chapter 4, almost none of anything in chapter 5 would make any sense. Judges as a whole, not a very positive book. Um, It's it's not very cheery or uh, even happy. Um, The the main theme of the book can really be summarized by the very last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We often talk about the cyclical nature of life in in Israel under the Old Covenant. God would rescue His people from oppression, lead them faithfully toward His good desired ends. They would take His mercy and provision for granted, fall prey to uh, idol worship of some kind, completely rebel against God, and then their sin would bring a variety of consequences with it, like pestilence, famine, or drought. They would then repent of their sin against God. They would cry out to God for mercy and God would rescue them and lead them faithfully again toward His desired ends and around and around and around they would go. Perhaps most commonly what we see in Judges is the consequence of oppression by another nation. Israel would fall into grievous sin. God would send a warring army against them to bring them into, cap- into captivity. In time, their agony would provoke them to call out to God And he would oblige. He would, in Judges, raise up a deliverer, a judge, who would defeat the oppressing enemy, leading Israel's army in the battle for deliverance. And he would rescue Israel from bondage. After this deliverance, Israel would then fall back into her old ways and rebel against God, and the cycle would repeat. In Judges 3, we see this pattern with Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. We read at the very end of chapter 3, in verse 31, that Shamgar kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad, delivering and saving Israel. But as we move into chapter 4, verse 1, we read that the people of Israel 
again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We're told then that the Lord sold Israel into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and the commander of his army was named Sisera, and they had 900 chariots of iron, and they oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And right on cue, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. In verse 3 of chapter 4. And the Lord raises up a surprising figure, Deborah, a prophetess, to judge Israel. Deborah calls a man named Barak and tells him to mount up an army of 10,000 people and go out to meet Sisera, the commander of the army of Canaan. Meet him for battle. She tells Barak that God had promised to deliver Sisera into his hand, yet Barak responds in a strikingly odd way. He tells Deborah that he would only go into battle if she went with him, which she agrees to do, but warns him that the path he has chosen would not end with his name in lights, but a woman's instead. And we read in verses 11 to 16 that God did just as he had promised. He routed Sisera and all his many chariots, and they fell by the edge of the sword to the Israelites. Not a man was left except Sisera, who, instead of fighting to the death, fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of a man named Heber, who had a peace treaty with King Jabin. Jael welcomed Sisera into the tent, covered him with a rug, offered him some milk to drink, and he peacefully slept. Jael then takes a tent peg and a hammer, strolls over to his sleeping side and drives the tent peg into his temple, killing him instantly. She goes out to meet Barak, who is looking for Sisera, and she tells him she will show him the man that he's looking for. He enters into the tent, and what does he find but Sisera dead with the tent peg still in his temple. And then we read in verse verses 23 and 24, that on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And what comes next but a song? In this song, in chapter 5, the, the really overarching theme is one of deliverance. And there's a, there's a particular emphasis on the surprising nature of deliverance that we find here. Uh, our wisdom, conventional wisdom, the wisdom of man, dictates that deliverance uh, should come at a certain time and in a certain way. But God does not operate according to human wisdom. And this is quite apparent in the song of Deborah. There is a surprising nature to deliverance. And so as we look at Judges 5 this morning, uh, there are three main observations I'd like to consider with you. First, in verses 1 to 9, we will see that Deliverance often comes when all seems lost. Deliverance often comes 
at the very end when all hope is gone. Second, in verses 10 to 23, we will see that deliverance often comes attended with great struggle. Deliverance comes with great struggle. Third, in verses 24 to 31, we see deliverance often comes from the most unexpected places. So let's look then at verses 1 to 9. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So again, what we see here is that deliverance often comes when all seems lost. The song begins by identifying Deborah and Barak as the ones who sing it. Deborah's, however, is the voice of prominence throughout. She begins by calling on her audience to bless the Lord as she sings of God's mighty act of deliverance. What we see in verses 2-5. to God, she says, marched out against his enemies and conquered them using very vivid imagery. God's marching shakes and quakes the earth down to its very foundations. We see in verses 6 to 9 that in the days of Shamgar and Jael, the highways were abandoned. It was only the byways that saw any traffic. The villagers ceased. Life had come to a screeching halt. under this oppression from King Jabin. But we saw back in verse 3 of chapter 4 that Jabin was, was cruel. 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed Israel for 20 years. Things had become bleak in the days of this oppression. We see in verse 8 that because of Israel's idolatry, life in Israel had gotten so bad that even as war was breaking out right at their very gates, they couldn't find a single shield or even one spear amongst 40,000 Israelites. They were utterly unprepared for battle. And yet, it is precisely here that deliverance comes. God came to the rescue when all seemed lost. Bless the Lord, says Deborah in 
verses 1 and 9. Deliverance often waits until suffering reaches a fever pitch before arriving. Why? Why must things often get so bad before deliverance comes? Well, there are probably many reasons. I want to mention um, just a couple here. First, perhaps deliverance doesn't arrive sooner because we do not ask for it sooner. Consider the example in Judges. Jabin harshly ruled over Israel for 20 years before they cried out to the Lord. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 14, Moab ruled over Israel for 18 years before they cried out to God. Just in these few examples, it appears that God's people had a bad habit of waiting an exceptionally long time to pray and seek God's help. Now, whenever they did pray and ask for help, help he gave. As we mentioned in 2 to 5, when God rose up to come to their aid, the earth trembled, the mountains shook. God was not lacking in any resources to help, but Israel, it seems, was unwilling to ask. Jesus tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. Perhaps... Suffering is prolonged at times because we do not ask. I think a second and related reason, though, why deliverance often seems to wait so long to show up, is that so we might learn to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is what happens here in Israel. Was there a shield to be found among 40,000 Israelite warriors? No matter. God is still plenty able to save. This is what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He writes about a, a tribulation that he had experienced in Asia that was so bad, so severe, he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. He said that he and those with him felt as though they were under the sentence of death. You could say, in other words, that things had gotten really bad. Why did God allow Paul to suffer so? Why did he allow things to get so bad before he rescued him? It's unlikely in Paul's case that it was because he waited so long to ask. Paul tells us very clearly in that chapter. He says it's so that he might learn to rely not on himself, but on God who raises the, on the God who raises the dead. What about us, brothers and sisters? Does it take fever pitch level of suffering before we turn to the Lord? Can we learn this lesson from Israel, from Paul? Can we learn to call out to God before, during, and after our trials? Think about the Lord Jesus and His prayer life. Can we learn from Him to live daily in communion with God 
so that when we are in our garden, as it were, sweating drops of blood because of the extreme anguish of our souls, we're praying not as a last-ditch effort to find help when all else has failed, but like Jesus, we can pray as an expression of full and sincere dependence upon God that has been cultivated over a lifetime of simple trust and faith. Think about some suffering you've experienced in your life. Maybe something you're currently experiencing or something in the very recent past, something fresh in your memory. How much time and energy was spent praying? Did you do everything you possibly could in your own strength only to finally, eventually cave and pray? Or maybe you prayed early on in the struggle and then continued on in your own strength after that. You know, often we'll say things or, hear, or we'll hear people say things like, um, I, I guess the only thing left to do now is pray. And I think in a sense, if we realize that we have stretched human ability to its limit, that statement can stand fairly well. But I think it, it can communicate something unhelpful. Because from the beginning, we must pray. Step one is prayer. And we must continue in it. Our praying in difficult times communicates something of the value we place on prayer. What is prayer worth to you? What does prayer accomplish? Do things have to get so bad in your life that you begin to despair of life itself before you finally pray? Well, one possible mistake to make in thinking through this first observation, I think, is, is to begin to think that our only move in suffering and trial is to pray and wait. I think it's a mistake to think that the only thing to do is pray and wait. And therefore, it's, it's good that we have a kind of a balancing observation to make here in verses 10 to 23. Let's read those now. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in a song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root they march down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, march down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, faithful to Barak, and in, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of, of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds? 
to hear the whistling for the flocks. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So we see here that deliverance comes often attended with great struggle on our part. We must act. We saw in verses 1 to 9 that Deborah was quite taken with the commitment of the leaders to give themselves to the people, to give themselves for the people. And here we see in verse 11 that the people of the Lord marched down to the gates. Uh, in verse, the first part in 10 and the first part of 11, she is calling on um, a number of different people to, to hear and to sing, much like she did the kings at the beginning of the song. She's turning her attention a little bit uh, to those who ride on donkeys, sit on rich carpets, to the artists and musicians and such. She says, the people marched down to the gates. Once they prayed, God raised up a deliverer, they still needed to spring into action. In verse 13, the remnant of the noble marched down. They marched down against the mighty. Ephraim marched down, and so did Benjamin, Zebulun, Issachar, were faithful to Deborah and Barak. We see in verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali risked their lives to the death. Yet we're told that Reuben, Dan, and Asher stayed back. Gilead as well. They would not fight. They stayed back and passively waited and are here rebuked. What we see here are examples of proper and improper responses to to trial. All of Israel was under a great burden because of the cruel oppression of the Canaanites. They prayed, and a portion of the people spring to action. They sought the Lord's favor with His appointed judge at the helm. They followed and labored with their leaders for victory. But another portion stays back. And receives criticism. Verses 19 to 23, we see, we saw that all creation was engaged in this battle. Israel was not alone. The stars of heaven, the heavenly host, fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept the Canaanites away. The horses' hooves beat loudly in the battle. And yet, despite this, Meraz, it's, uh, I don't know of any other place in the Old Testament where this 
cities mentioned. Uh, so it's hard to tell exactly what it is, but it's probably a city somewhere within the plains of Galilee. Um, they did not come to fight. And they receive an exceedingly harsh rebuke. The angel of the Lord curses and condemns the, ha- the inhabitants of the lazy city. Because again, Israel fought, but they did not fight alone. God roused the heavens to wage war on behalf of his people as they went out to fight. The message then is that while we are not to proceed without praying, neither are we to pray without proceeding. First observation, right? Don't proceed without praying. The second observation, don't pray without proceeding. We hear things like, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord. I'm, I'm just waiting on the Lord's will. And again, these kinds of statements, I think, are understandable. And it's good and right and wise to pray and to wait. But our waiting can become lethargy if we're not careful. Think specifically about the sins in your life. Do you expect, with whatever struggle you have, you're struggling to conquer some sin or to make progress in your life spiritually, do you expect that God is simply going to make it happen for you? I admit, it is a tightrope to walk, but we must do so faithfully. We can't expect to make any headway in our growth in grace apart from the power of the Lord working in us. But neither should we have any expectation that God will deliver us if we're unwilling to do the work required to make the gains we want to see. Hebrews 12.14, we are commanded to strive for holiness. The Christian life isn't a passive one. So let's ask ourselves, are we passively waiting for the Lord to do what He has commanded us to do? And if we are, let's repent and get to work. It is easy for us to want to ease our way into heaven. This is the mistake that Miss Timorous made in part two of Pilgrim's Progress. If you're unfamiliar... um, After Christiana, so part one, you have Christian who goes on his pilgrimage to the celestial city. Through many trials and tribulations, he and Hopeful finally reach the river, cross over, and receive their welcome. In part two, uh, Christian's wife, Christiana, learns of her husband's arrival to the city. She is convicted of her harsh treatment of him, the way she spurned his invitation to go with him, and she decides, she and her children, to go on pilgrimage as well. Miss Timorous, their neighbor, tells Christiana that she must be mad to run herself upon such difficulties as those which await all who leave for this journey. She thinks of all the work that must be done, all the suffering, all the enduring, and she cannot bear it. She had heard of Christian's journey, 
how he met with lions, Apollyon, the shadow of death, Vanity Fair, where Faithful was executed, Doubting Castle, many other things. And so she exhorts Christiana to keep herself at home and forsake this idea of going on pilgrimage. Well, Christiana responds, All these troubles that I am like to meet with in the way, they are so far from being to me a discouragement that they show that I am in the right. The bitter must come before the sweet. And that also will make the sweet sweeter. Indeed, life is often filled with suffering. And our way through that suffering is often attended with great struggle and striving on our part. But that should in no way dissuade us from pressing on in faith. Because though the bitter may come, the sweet does as well. Well, I want to turn then to consider our third final point from verses 24 to 31. Deliverance often comes from the most unexpected places. Verses 24 to 31. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for forty years. There are a number of surprising things in the events that unfold in chapter 4, which are sort of retold here in Judges 5. The cowardice of Barak and the conquering of Sisera are not the least of these surprising things. Hiding behind a woman, Barak refuses to go into battle without her. Seeking shelter from the fight, Sisera entrusts himself to a woman. We're told because of Barak's cowardice, Deborah is praised, and Barak is nearly forgotten. The victory over Sisera is not credited to Barak, the leader of the Israelite army, but it's credited to Jael, the most blessed tent-dwelling woman. 
the wife of Heber the Kenite. Who? Exactly. Conventional wisdom tells us to look to the strong and the powerful, the mighty, for deliverance. It's the general, the commander of the army that will, in the end, rescue us from destruction. Not so here. Sisera had asked for water, something that perhaps would have refreshed him, kept him alert. She gave him milk instead. Jael's craftiness shouldn't be underestimated here. She gave him milk. She offered to fill his belly with fabulous foods and she tucks him into bed. He lets down his guard. He closes his eyes for what will be the final time. Tent peg through the temple. What? What what a bizarre and strange turn of events. She was, after all, married to a man who had a peace treaty with Sisera's king. We're not really given her motivation. We don't know why exactly she does what she does, but she's praised for it. In verses 26 and 27, we get this really poetic reflection on this valiant act. Over and over again, he sank, he fell, he's dead. Dead. He's very dead. Sisera is dead. In case you missed it, he's dead. And we see in verses 20 to 31 that he's never coming home, despite the wishes of his mother. What a shocking twist and vantage point that is, to go from 27 to 28. 27, we're in the tent looking at victorious Jael standing over the corpse of the dead Sisera, and immediately we are thrust into his mother's home as she looks longingly out the window for her son's return. Return that will never come. The song ends with the aspiration that God's enemies perish like Sisera. That his friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The whole thing is, it's just shocking. The whole scene rattles us. Especially this abrupt shift from the tent with Sisera's corpse to the lattice with Sisera's mother. Barak's little faith had led him down a path ultimately of shame. Sisera's pride and rebellion against God led him to his death. In the end, God worked through quite unexpected means. It wasn't Barak who got the glory, but this woman, Jael. Which is all the more striking, not just that she's unknown, but that she's a she. Women aren't barbaric, warlike creatures driving tent pegs through people's temples. God's not intended a woman to be on the front lines of battle, and yet 
Here, it is a woman who fells the leader of the Canaanite army. What a shocking, surprising twist. Deliverance is often surprising. It's easy to look on the might of the strong and say to ourselves that they are the ones we want on our side. But this is exactly not the point of the Bible. We see this over and over and over again. In Scripture, Abraham, with 318 men, conquered four nations and rescued his nephew Lot in Genesis. Moses overcomes Pharaoh in Egypt and delivers Israel out of Egyptian bondage with a staff. David kills Goliath with a stone and defeats the Philistines. Jael slays Sisera, destroying the Canaanites with a tent peg. Over and over we see the surprise of deliverance in the Bible. I didn't mention it, but I hope your minds are going automatically to the greatest act of deliverance, which comes in the most unexpected of all places. From the most unexpected of all people. A virgin girl in the middle of nowhere Israel learns she is with child. And then in time, this child is born. This baby boy grows up to be a lowly carpenter, loving God, serving his family and his community. By outward appearances, nothing special. Eventually, he leaves his profession with his father and takes up the business full-time of his heavenly father. He amasses a following of disciples through his teaching and the various miracles he performed until one day he was betrayed by one of his own. Turned over to the authorities on trumped-up charges and abandoned by all who he had loved. Even the father with whom he had so closely walked his entire life. And in anguish on a Roman cross, he cries out in desperation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, he breathes his last. He is then buried in a tomb not his own. But then three days later, there's a sighting. And another... And another. One, two, twelve people have seen him. He's alive. Now fifty. Now one hundred. The king has returned. Now two hundred. Now five hundred. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And with him a host of the slain. Death has been defeated. Death itself has been laid in the grave. You see, we are not delivered ultimately from the Canaanite army or the Assyrian or Babylonian empires. We have been delivered from the dominating and tyrannical rule of death himself. And it all began in a tiny manger in Bethlehem. Really, it began back in Genesis 3 with a tiny word of promise. The seed of the woman would crush the head 
of the serpent. And ever since, the serpent has been waging war against God's people. And despite our fixation on big and flashy, God saved the world in the most unexpected of places. The place of the skull, Golgotha. Isn't this Paul's entire point in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31? We don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to, to do so. But in that passage, he says that through the cross... God destroys the wisdom of the wise. Worldly wisdom tells us that it is the powerful who matter. The powerful are the ones where progress is to be made. But this is not the way of the cross. God works through that which is low and despised. A tent-dwelling woman in Kadesh, for example, to bring to nothing the things that are, like a man of war from Canaan. And why is this? So that no human may boast in the presence of God. So as we consider this song, we are instructed again in deep, meaningful ways from sacred Scripture. The words of this song remind us that we must be committed to seeking God's face in our distress Trusting that He will care for us even when things seem darkest. It teaches us that even though God is indeed the, working, the one working to deliver us, we must not think that we should sit passively and idly by waiting for God to feed us with a silver spoon. We've seen that we must not put our trust in the power and might of this world, but in the power and might of God who works in surprising and unexpected ways. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, indeed, Your ways are beyond us. Your thoughts are much higher than ours. God, we pray that You would help us to trust, to put our faith in You each and every day, each moment of every day. Work in us through this Word, imperfectly preached, the lips of a sinful man. Your word, nevertheless, stands forth as true. Send it out now into our hearts that we might be conformed into the image of Christ our Lord. May your enemies perish, O God, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.